Um, thank you so much for coming to our session on corporate history in nonprofit spaces. Um, my name is Melissa Bingman, and I direct the public history program at West Virginia University. And I always go to the corporate history sessions that AASLH hosts. I get so much out of them, and I'm just so fascinated with this idea of how corporations use their history. And um, the idea for this session came from at one of those <coughs> sessions, uh, my colleague Brian Failing and I were talking about what if you run a nonprofit, but you have corporate archives or corporate collections? How do you interpret them? And um, I had just been to both the Baltimore Museum of Industry and the Bush Beans um, Visitor Center. I don't know if any of you have been to those. Okay, great. Um, and they have similar artifacts in each, but very different interpretations. So that is kind of what got me thinking about this session. Um, so first, I will introduce all of our panelists, and then I will just show you some of the, um, just a brief introduction on this comparison between the Baltimore Museum of Industry and the Bush's Beans Visitor Center. Um, so then each of our speakers will present in the order that they're listed on the next slide. Well, I'll do that later. Um, and then we'll do, take questions at the end of the session for conversation discussion. On your, um, the app, we were able to upload an article that Emily found kind of discussing this issue of, you know, everyone calls their place a museum and sometimes they're just glorified gift shops. Um, so kind of the appropriation of this word museum and what that means for us as professionals. And then um, I know Kathy and Anne um, will be, can stay around just for a little bit, but they both have lunch plans. But Emily and I would like to invite um, at least six of you if you want to join us for lunch after. I made reservations for eight. Um, here's a map. It's at the Dandelion. So please do, if you're interested in continuing the conversation or just meeting new people. I love to meet new people. Don't you love to meet new people? <laughs> we both love meeting new people. So we'd, we'd be like happy. You like to see the well, you know. <laughs> You're seeing new people just in a different context. Well, yes, Philadelphia happens to be very central located for a lot of um, people that everyone knows, as I'm sure you all have discovered. Um, so any questions so far? Great. Ah, all right. <laughs> so I'll introduce our speakers. So Emily Ruby, Emily Ruby will speak first. And she has served as a lead curator for a recent exhibition on the 145-year history of the Heinz Company. And she'll discuss how the museum has become the repository for the company's history. Ms. Ruby received her MA from the Hagley Graduate Program in, the, in History at the University of Delaware, where she focused her studies on industrial business and technological history with a minor in museum studies. Then Ann Mataraz will speak. She is the director of the curatorial division, the chief historian, and director of the Western Pennsylvania Sports Museum. Since she has worked at the Heinz History Center, Ann has researched and interpreted corporate collections ranging from Starkist tuna to glass, steel, and aluminum. She's a graduate of Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and she completed coursework for her PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. Kathy Franz is the Curator of Business History and the Chair of the Division of Work and Industry at the National Museum of American History. And she will discuss the long history of collecting from businesses at the Smithsonian Institution, culminating in the recent efforts to build collections in women's, and women's history and business. Kathy holds a PhD in American Studies from Brown University, and she ran the public history program at American University before she, gain, before she began working full-time at the Smithsonian. So thank you all for doing this. 
Um, so the Bush Beans Visitor Center in Tennessee, it's in East Tennessee, it's just outside of Gatlinburg. So I think that's important for the context of understanding the narrative that they're portraying. So of course they want to talk about, they want to sell product. There is a gift shop, a restaurant, um, but they have a pretty good history section. Um, so here is a canning device. Um, both museums, uh, Bush's Bean Visitor Center and the Baltimore Museum of Industry, um, have pretty good displays on the technology involved in canning and why canning was so important to, um, to distributing um, food products. Um, but at Bush's Beans, the narrative is more about um, how the Bush family gave back to the community, which if you've been to Gatlinburg, is kind of a theme throughout Gatlinburg with Dollywood, you know, giving back to the community, creating jobs, that's a, a theme throughout. Um, so their interpretation of this is a little bit about government regulations on these devices and how they overcame this, this challenge to really keep benefiting the community and provide jobs. At the Baltimore Museum of Industry, um, very similar devices, a larger exhibit focused on canning and how important it was to Baltimore industry, but the focus of that museum is really more about labor history and showing, connecting people to these artifacts. So how did people use them? What were the dangers involved? Um, so very similar artifacts, almost identical, but very diff different interpretations and something to think about as we talk about um, corporate history in nonprofit places. And here's just another device at the Baltimore Museum of Industry. It's called a retort. And um, if you take a tour of the museum, they really emphasize you know, how dangerous this is. It's basically a pressure cooker that, are, that seals cans. And what happens if a can is not properly closed before it goes into this, you get a mess. If the retort is not closed properly, then you have disaster and potentially loss of human life. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Emily, and I'm going to try to pull up your slide presentation. Okay, and I'm going to be successful at it. I just <laughs> know. Well, I can get started actually while okay, that's going on. So <laughs> I'm going to talk about a specific relationship with one corporation at the Heinz History Center, uh, and how that history, the history of that company. Um, is kind of intertwined um, with the History Center, and that would be the H.J. Heinz Company. Um, and given our name, I think we can all see the, the obvious connections there. Um, and so I am the person on staff that deals with people that want to donate to the collection, so um, a lot of public-facing time. And so often I have to explain that we are actually not part of the Heinz Company, um, but we actually cover Western Pennsylvania history. This is just one of our many collections. Uh, so to go back in time here to how we became the Heinz History Center, the History Center was originally, and it's still our legal name, the Historical Society of Western Pennsylvania. So that was in 1879 um, that we became the Historical Society of Western Pennsylvania. And so for the first 100 years or so of our history, that was our name. Um, we had a small building in the kind of a cultural neighborhood in Pittsburgh. But around the 70s and 80s, as the um, steel industry was declining and a lot of people were leaving the region. There were a coalition of organizations in the community that felt like it was important to start retaining that history. We were losing a lot of um, this important history of the region uh, and that we needed a central a place where we could um, keep that history. So the Historical Society moved into this building you see here. This is um, an old ice house, an old ice factory and storage facility. 
um, in the strip district of Pittsburgh. So that is right next to downtown. Um, and we became the Senator John Hines Pittsburgh Regional History Center. And this is a time, you know, in the early 90s when history centers were kind of on the rise across the country. Um, and so that name was chosen partially because the senator, Senator John Hines, who's the great-grandson of the founder of the Hines Company, um, had died recently, very tragically, in a, pl a plane crash. Um, and so his memory was still very much alive in the community. And it was a naming opportunity in the sense that at the time that the History Center was starting off, um, the thought was that if we name it after the senator, the Hines Endowment would not let the uh, center fail. <laughs> so, so that was part of the reasoning behind that. Um, but over time, that name became a little cumbersome. Um, and so the Pittsburgh Regional was dropped off of that, and we became the Senator John Hines History Center, and now more commonly known as the Hines History Center. I feel like most of us, even on staff, barely use the Senator John part of that name. And so that can cause some confusion. Um, part of that is uh, sometimes people think that we are so financially supported by the company and so that we have you know, more money that in fact we do to purchase artifacts or whatever that may be. Um, I think people outside the region uh, more often than on staff will, I mean in, in the region will think that we are then um, a part of the company like I said. I think if you're from the region there's so many things that are named after that company, Heinz Hall and the Heinz Lofts, Heinz Field, um, that it's not as much of an issue. Um, but our most famous, I think, confusion over this name was uh, Ed Sheeran, if any of you know him, the pop star, he's obsessed with Heinz ketchup, and when he was in Pittsburgh doing a concert, he um, put on his Instagram a little story that he was going to the ketchup museum, um, and I think he was a little disappointed when he came and found that it was actually only one exhibit, um, but still, he did uh, put that out. We got uh, over a million views, and even though he didn't tag us, if you Google ketchup museum, we're the first thing that shows up, so. <laughs> So that was good. Uh, and then the next slide, sorry, I, that's the Senator um, John Hines exhibit that explains a little bit about the history of that name um, in the Great Hall. And then here I went on TripAdvisor and just pulled up a few kind of negative reviews of people that came and were a little disappointed. You know, I expected a Coca-Cola history type of museum like in Atlanta, you know, they wanted more information and exhibit on Hines you know, expected it to be more about Heinz itself. And then because of the name and the sign, if you saw that big neon sign too in the very first slide, that's the sign from the actual factory. And we are actually right across the river from the factory, so that's another sometimes layer of confusion in branding. And you can go to the, to the next slide. So we actually do hold the corporate collection for the company, and so to tell a little bit of history of that, so this is Ed Lehue. He was an advertising executive for the Heinz company. And in about 1960, someone asked him for an old bottle they wanted to trade, and he went to look and realized that the company had no, none of their old um, packaging material um, and found that most of it had been destroyed after the 36 flood. Um, and so he went out scouring the country, and this became an obsession. And over the next 40 or so years, he amassed an amazing collection of packaging and um, mark mainly packaging and marketing kind of material from the Heinz company. And we're talking over 3,000 some objects and hundreds of thousands of archival pieces. Uh, so the company then purchased that collection off of Ed Lehu and they put it on display. Um, and that, that's, there you see him, uh, sorry, go back one time. 
He's <laughs> no. Oh no, don't worry about it. Uh, he was he was in the kind of corporate display there before it came to the History Center. Uh, so you can go for it. So in uh, the 80s or so, the company uh, was thinking about what to do with this collection. They had talked with the Smithsonian about, if you believe the newspaper reports at the time, about donating it, but they really then decided that it was important that it stay in Pittsburgh. And so it came to the History Center um, in 1993, right about the time that we were opening the, the new center. Um, and it became, you know, it was the largest collection that we had at the ever received at the time. And it was, in the words of the CEO at that time, among the premier corporate collections in the world, uh, and that would help scholars learn what life was like for the past 125 years, you know, what we bought, what we ate, and how we lived. So you can flip through the next few. These are just examples of you know, th the types of things in the collection. That's some of the archives, just amazing images of uh, life in the factory. Oh, go back, go back. Let's go too far. <laughs> so um, a, few, a few of the issues with this collection when I came, so it was primarily collected by one man. Um, and you know, there wasn't a large bottle um, collecting market at the time for the, for the Heinz bottles. And so there wasn't a lot of history behind the bottles when they were created and things like that. So it was Ed doing, not, you know, Ed be not being a historian, doing a lot of that research himself. And so when it came to us, um, you know, it was all of Ed's notes, and a lot of that history um, was wrong, frankly, <laughs> or just a little off, and it's things we've been discovering over time um, <clears throat> where Ed just wasn't, you know, quite right on dates and things like that. But some of that stuff has become, like, kind of embedded in the, the history of the company. Yeah, you can go to the next one. So here we have a timeline on the company website. That image is actually you see from our collection. Um, and it says 1876, the year ketchup was created. And this date is everywhere. And this is just a small example. Um, we don't, I'm not sure where this date came from, but we know from newspaper advertisements and from um, product labels that they were making it you know, years earlier. And so this is a narrative that we were trying to <laughs> work against, but it's all over. It's all over the website, and you know, this being their most popular product, um, it's something. It's one of these issues. Uh, for another, another example would be you know the naming of the 57 varieties. The story goes that Heinz was on an elevated train in 1896 and saw a sign for 21 varieties of shoes. I don't know exactly where that story came from. It might be true. Um, I have no reason to think that it's not. But again. If you trace it back, it's like, well, it, it, this person told this person, but there's no actual like primary source that I've been able to find that says that. And these kind of mythology stories of the founding of the company, you know, he was putting it in clear bottles when everyone else was using, you know, colored glass. Not quite true. You know, other people were using clear glass at the time as well, but it's one of those stories that's told <laughs> over and over again. Um, we can go to the to the next slide. So when the collection came um, in 93, then we opened the History Center in 96, and then in 99, the first exhibit of the um, collection opened. And it was supposed to be a three-year temporary exhibit. It was so popular, it was there for 15 years. Um, and they really stayed out of the kind of development of it and content, and they've never actually, that's never been an issue with the company. Um, they did not give us funding, however, they had funded the processing of the collection, but 
at the time for them, brand, this wasn't a great branding opportunity. They could put a commercial out and reach a lot more people, um, you know, for the same amount of money. So they, they didn't fund it, but um, they also didn't dictate any content. The only thing they would do is over the years, if they got new products, they would want us to put those in the exhibit. And they'd sometimes say, oh, you should take out this product. That we don't have that product anymore. And just reminding them that we are a history museum. We're, we're documenting their history. We don't, you know, we don't care if they don't have that anymore. This is part of their history, so those reminders. So uh, I think that's another exhibit, another picture of the old exhibit there. Yeah, so the exhibit was, after 15 years, looking a little sad and outdated. Graphics were fading, um, things like that. And so in 2012, when the Berkshire Hathaway 3G Capital takeover of lines happened, um, unbeknownst to us, the new CEO, came through the History Center just to learn about the company history a bit. And, you know, he thought, oh, they can do better. You know, we, we agreed. You know, we had been thinking about moving it to a more central location. We knew it needed updating. So we kind of pitched to them, and they actually funded a new exhibit that opened in 2014 in a much more central location. And for them, uh, this was a time when the company was getting a lot of bad press. Uh, and the rumors in the community were they're gonna shut everything down in Pittsburgh and move to Chicago. Um, and so this was a chance for them to kind of show their commitment to the region and that's why they chose to fund it at that time. And this is in fact the, the first time the, CE, the new CEO, Bernardo, he spoke to the public was at the press preview for the exhibit. So that was his kind of first public press time. Um, and it was, you know, it's an example of a corporation, corporation using a museum to legitimize their role in the community, uh, which can be problematic, but for us, um, since they weren't, again, dictating content, um, it's, you know, it was a, bene it was a beneficial relationship. Uh, and so for this exhibit, this is the entrance here. I'll just run through briefly. Again, we have so much product packaging and marketing material that tends to be where the focus is because we are really kind of weak in the early history of the company. The corporate archive that we have doesn't have a lot of early history and the family archive that has a lot of the early history is separate and it's owned by the endowment and you don't have access to it unless you ask specifically for what you want. So there's no like list of what they have. So that's been a little bit of an issue in getting that early history um, into our exhibits. You can go to the next slide. So there's the marketing wall, which is always our kind of strongest. So we have the most artifacts related to marketing and packaging. You can go to the next slide. Um, and behind that large ketchup bottle there, you see the timeline of packaging and products through the first 100 years. That really tells that story of, you know, what were they making and why were they making it at this time? And, you know, the, the story of kind of food, food history as well. You can go to the next slide. Um, and this is an interactive table. This was a chance for us to tell some stories where the collection was weak um, after the 1960s and, or so. So you put the product on the table and the different products will tell the story of that product internationally, domestically, and through time. So things like baby food, soup, baked beans, a, a lot of these products that aren't made domestically anymore but still have a strong like, international presence. Um, and that was a way to tell those stories. Go to the next slide. Okay, so there we are. I'm, I'm in conclusion here. So to conclude, this is a company that was you know, so deeply tied to their history for the first um, 100 or so years of their existence. So this here is a great example. So Heinz, when he was alive, he took his childhood home 
um, that was eight miles up the river from the company and had it raised up, put on a barge, and brought down to the center of the factory. And it's because that's where he started the company in his childhood home. And so he just wanted to make that connection of the, the, you know, the roots of the company. And that is now at Greenfield Village. Um, but that's also where the history of the company was. You could walk through there and there was kind of early bottles and things like that. Um, so now we have a company that is very, uh, it's going through a lot right now. It's a 150 year anniversary and you wouldn't know it except for the History Center that's celebrating it because you know they're going through so much that and they're so disconnected from the history. When the company came in, most of the old timers left, so they have lost a lot of their history, um, a lot of that kind of knowledge within the company. Uh, you know, we often get calls from Chicago, which is where a lot of the marketing for the company is centered, and it's just they know nothing about the history anymore. And so it's more important, I think, even than ever now that we have this collection and that we're showing it. So we can also show to the people of Pittsburgh, who so many people are tied to this company through their families, or, and everyone went on the company tour, um, that we're still, you know, interpreting and sharing that history, you know, even though the company is not as tied to our region. So while Emily talked about a particular case study of a single company, I'm going to talk uh, a little bit more about my experience, which has been dealing with uh, many corporations and some of the challenges and opportunities that doing corporate history presents. Um, I think the biggest challenge really is, uh, and I have a couple slides to illustrate this, um, the funding landscape, as we all know, for history museums and museums in general has changed dramatically in the last 15 years. And this is just a slide that demonstrates from 2005, um, we are the center bar. Um, the top is the pink, it represents where funding streams come from for all history museums on the far left, uh, the Heinz History Center in particular, and local museums, and this is drawn from some AAM surveys. Um, at the Heinz History Center at that time, investment income is the pink at the top, 15%. Um, the green represents, um, Earned, or sorry, uh, it's light blue, I guess, is the next, represents um, earned income. The green represents private gifts, and the bottom figure represents government funding. So at the time in 2005, we were positioned better than some history, most history museums, in that a smaller part of our funding was drawn from government sources, um, but all of us saw, I think, as history museums, somewhere between a quarter and a third of our funding coming from government. And the next slide, you can see this is just uh, a table from 2012. We're the very top line of that table, and this just represents the money that flowed to the History Center in our total budget, which was about, at that time in 2012, um, about 20% of our budget just flowing through state, the state of Pennsylvania PHMC grants. Um, so at our high in 2006, 2007, $600,000 a year came from that one funding source. By 2011, 2010, 2012, we were completely zeroed out of that state funding source. So this leaves a huge gap. Um, and all museums we know face this. Federal funding has fallen, um, state funding, local funding. So where do we fill that gap? Um, and what has the new landscape of the last decade meant in terms of museums in general and history museums in particular. For us at the History Center, um, it was uh, 
it's been really two sources that have filled that gap. One is creative funding that's flown through the Allegheny County government where they instituted an extra 1% sales tax. Um, those are called regional asset district funds. So that 1% sales tax generates funding um, in the multiples of million dollars every year, but every nonprofit institution in town then competes for that share of funding. There are very few, um, like the Carnegie Museums and a couple other, the library system, that have a guaranteed flow um, from that budget every year, but the rest of us uh, compete for our source of funding for that. So while it is an opportunity, it's a constant um, battle to draw from that line of funding and try and fill the gaps that uh, previously were part of our government funding. The other place that has grown, of course, um, as foundations have either turned their attention to the many nonprofits in our community that um, saw that decrease in government funding, so the many people that are coming to them looking for money. So our case to foundations at the same time has gone through some change, and some of the major foundations that um, serves Pittsburgh through time that we were reliant upon, um, even foundations like the Heinz Endowments have changed their focus and centered their focus on child education or environmental issues um, or other such uh, uh, issues. Um, so one of the things we've had to try and build is the private and corporate um, support of our institution. And often what we're finding, as Emily alluded to, is that that corporate funding that is flowing to us is not flowing through foundations, it's flowing through marketing departments. So you're getting a, and I'm sure many of you have the same experience, you're getting um, a stream of funding that has a, um, a vested interest in how that funding's being used. And it can be a vested interest that's very positive. You're doing a project within your community, a program that has um, that is very aligned with their mission. So for instance, in terms of the sports museum, we get funding from Dick's Sporting Goods. Um, they support our, our programs related to um, health and exercise with children. So it's a great alliance with our mission. But other funding, um, next slide please, um, we have to be asking these questions. So we constantly, since we've opened, we had a community gallery. We developed that community gallery thinking it would be ethnic federations, artist groups and other community groups that would want to come and do exhibits there. What we found were the largest group of people who came to us seeking to use that space were corporations. They were celebrating an anniversary. Um, they wanted, uh, they were institutions of learning, Duquesne University. They wanted a space where they could um, reach a new audience and also um, tell their story within an institution that provided credibility as museums do. Um, so for years we've been navigating this question of how to remain true to kind of the standards and ethics of museums and also um, how to balance the bottom line and how to do uh, corporate or industrial history um, in an ethical um, and transparent way. So it's something that I've navigated a lot in my career from the very beginning, um, working with building collections related to the glass industry um, through, uh, this is a 2017 project, a project that right now it might be very different if this project had come to us, Starkiss Industries. Nobody thinks of Pittsburgh as the home to the headquarters for a tuna company. It doesn't make any sense. And in fact, the basis of their production facilities are in the American Samoa, 7,000 miles away from Pittsburgh. But the Heinz Company bought the Starkiss brand in the 50s. 
And so Starkist has been headquartered, even though gone through a number of ownerships and now are now owned by a South Korean company. They've been headquartered in Pittsburgh since the 1950s. So at their 100th anniversary, they came to us looking to tell their story. So the first thing we had to do is um, think about what is our mission? Is this a story that's aligned with our mission? And these food industry companies like a Heinz or Starkist, um, that is a story that um, is a part of our community history. So how do we make it obvious to our public from the very beginning? And you see in the intro line, um, in the very first sentence, I'll talk about the fact that you know there's 7,000 miles that separate this industry from Pittsburgh, and yet it's been headquartered and based here for more than 50 years. Um, so it's, it, this does become a mission-driven project. But as a marketing department, you're looking and you see they insisted, this was my one kind of stomach-turning moment in this project, they insisted on using the birthday candle logo that they developed for their online site as the logo of this exhibition. So, you know, in the end, it's a small concession to make to what they want, um, but we control the content. And I see in my role, um, next slide please, having a very honest conversation at the very beginning. You know, this is something that often flows through our development department, um, but navigating and then negotiating the relationship. Um, and that has, of course, its challenges because there are particular stories that a corporation wants to tell and there are particular stories that they very much don't want to tell. And we have to bring to that the table the sense that we are looking at all your history and uh, finding ways to tell it. Um, so for me, that's the, the angle that we took were really um, the angle of innovation, which is something that, as you'll see, um, pervades kind of some of our interpretation of the last 10 years throughout the building. And Starkist is actually an innovator in packaging. So this case in particular talks about the development of vacuum sealed pouches um, for delivery as kind of an on-the-go consumer product. Um, so we talked earlier in the exhibit about the rise of tuna um, during the depression years, the rise of sales of tuna because it was a cheap, affordable, easily to prepare convenient food um, that saw a huge uptick in its production um, and its sales during the Depression when people were looking for things like Heinz soups or um, canned tuna. Um, and then this development and packaging that's been called in marketing resources one of the major successful um, developments um, in terms of innovating packaging of the last 50 years. Uh, so we present that um, in a very um, uh, forward way. The other big story, of course, there's two big stories with tuna, as I said. Um, if we were doing this exhibit today, I think we'd have to think twice about it because Starkist has been a major player in a national, international lawsuit on price fixing with the other major tuna manufacturers. And I don't think that's a story they would have wanted to tell on their 100th anniversary. Um, so on their 102nd, the story might have changed. But the other major story, of course, related to um, tuna fish and seafood in general is the story of changing methods of harvesting tuna and the impact on the ocean environment. And Starkist was actually the first to sign the, the dolphin-free tuna pledge. Now, in more recent years, they've been taken to task for um, the methods that they're using and the methods of reporting that. But there was an environmental story, and we told that story within the exhibit. Um, and we were very honest about what we were going to say and what we were going to do um, and shared that with the corporation up front. The bulk of the stories that we're telling now, as I said, are stories related to innovation. And this is particularly interesting. This is a major exhibition. Um, it replaced our introductory exhibit that opened with the building in 1996. So this became Pittsburgh Tradition of Innovation, kind of our core exhibition uh, beginning in 
2008 um, when we opened the exhibit. Um, and it's a story that, while it has its roots in the earliest history of the region, um, comes up to the present day. And this is where we find um, most of the issues that test how we balance this mission-driven, um, transparent uh, uh, exhibition policy with um, the desires of corporations. And I'm just going to run through a couple of the test cases. So this is the end of the exhibition where we're looking at the more contemporary history. Um, it starts in about 1970, this last section of the exhibit, and talks about the decline of the steel industry and this sense of searching for what the future of Pittsburgh would be or what the identity of our region would now be tied to if it's not going to be tied to steel anymore, if we're not the steel city. Who are we and what is um, kind of what is the present and the future story of Pittsburgh? And I'll just talk, use a couple of these case studies. So um, as we moved into developing this exhibit, we had very little that dealt with the post-steel economy. So these were stories we had to actively go out and chase. Um, so one of the stories is the story of Bayer Material Sciences. Um, Bayer Corporation, obviously, you associate maybe with Bayer Aspirin. They're also a chemical company um, who has been uh, very involved in the development of plastics and polycarbonates. Um, materials. So we worked with Bayer to bring in materials from um, their uh, corporate collections to tell the story of the development of these kind of new materials. Because I wanted to talk about new areas of the economy, but also the manufacturing and industrial areas of the economy that remained in the area, and particularly about uh, corporate research and development and the development of those new materials. So at the time that we opened this exhibit, they were making uh, materials for things like bowling balls, like you see on display there. Um, next slide, please. They also, in the 1980s, developed a polycarbonate resin and substance that was used for CDs. So you have the opportunity to talk about um, these new plastics and how they advance other areas of technology. Well, what happened was um, Bear stops producing the materials for things like bowling balls. Bowling, of course, is a sport that's been on decline. Um, it didn't become, it was no longer an area of their um, production where there was a demand for their product. So they came to us and said, we'd like to change the exhibit. We'd like to take these, uh, the bowling balls and some other things out, and here's new things we want to give you. So then when you have to have that conversation to say, as Emily's saying, we're a history museum, we want to represent for our visitors this contextual story of material development. And it's important that we continue to keep those things from your history that tell that story. If there are new stories of innovation to tell, those are things we're, gonna, we're willing to integrate, but not at the cost of removing those things from the past. So what we did was bring in some of those new products. Now the other thing that happened at the same time is uh, Bayer went through a corporate change and they split their business and the material science arm became Covestro. So they also wanted to manage the textual labeling of all the uh, materials that were on display. So it's having another conversation with the marketing department people and saying, um, these materials were produced when you were the Bayer Corporation. 
bear is going to be identified as the producer of these. If you give us new materials that we're going to add, so as you see, you see the bowling ball there to the left. These are all new kind of foam insulation products that they're making and some um, polycarbonate beads, materials, the little beads that are in makeup um, and other um, aerosol uh, materials when you shake the can and you hear the beads rattling around. Um, Covestro makes those products. We will identify those new products as Covestro products. We will identify Covestro as the donor of those products, but the old products will maintain their original labeling. And we will t we're willing to talk about the fact that you stopped, ceased production of these items at a certain time, but we're not necessarily gonna take them off display because you wanna sell your present and your future history. Um, we are going to maintain that past history. So there is a negotiation that goes on on a continual basis. And we do find, as Emily said, you know, the, um, their staff will come in and they'll walk through the exhibit um, and they'll look at what's there and we'll hear from them on a, you know, every once in a while on changes what they want or how they want their space. In essence, this they see as marketing real estate, how they want their, their piece of real estate uh, to look or to appear. Uh, the other is the loan investor who has the um, uh, foundational story that they want told within the exhibit. So um, there is uh, ego involved with all of our donors, as we know, and a, a uh, desire to shape the story and the legacy as it's told. So this was a particularly um, aggressive donor who uh, had been called uh, in a publication uh, based on the, the press release that he uh, generated, I might add, the father of the MP3 player. So he's a Pittsburgh-born innovator. Um, we were willing to um, discuss with him possibly the inclusion of these materials in the exhibit, but to maintain our intellectual integrity as historians, as um, curators, we're obligated to do the research that proves or disproves, as Emily talked about, kind of those foundational myths of the company. So he was very much involved in the development of um, uh, the MP3 technology, but he wasn't the only one. And that's the story ultimately that we told. Um, when I did the patent searches related to his products, um, there were plenty of um, preceding patents that were listed as part of their research and presentation. So right there, that tells me you're not the first or the only to be involved in this technology. So it's incumbent upon us that um, we take the time to uh, to demonstrate that we have done the work that we would do with any other object before, or any other interpretation, uh, before we share it in a public forum. So this is one of my favorites. Um, Allegheny Technologies, originally Allegheny Ludlum, uh, was very involved with the development of stainless steel and other alloys, titanium and others. Um, in the beginning, this is uh, their early product lines from the 30s and 40s when they're doing silverware and dental instruments. Uh, there were other uses for these metals. Um, and then next slide. Um, this is some MSA products that are gonna tie into what I'm talking about. And then the next one too. Um, and then into today where they're doing pieces for aerospace, for um, transportation, for consumer goods. So one of the things that Allegheny Technologies gave us that's in this last section as well as the MSA piece that's next to it is that piece that says ATI on it. That's their current, or their logo from a few years ago. Well, that's all made out of their alloys. 
So as a curator, I was interested in it because, frankly, you look at the case below, those aren't the most evocative, engaging, or interesting materials to be sharing with the public. Um, the sign was bright, it was vibrant, it had their materials on it. This was no problem for ATI, but it's turned into a major problem, as has the MSA um, oxygen tank that goes with their respirator that it was in the slide before, for other corporations that come in because they all now want a big sign that has their name on. They see this as a piece of corporate signage. They don't see this as an artifact. So this is a negotiation that's just happened recently with our development department who wanted me to remove this sign from the exhibition. And I essentially said, because you walk out the door into this final section of the exhibit and it literally is right in your face and you see it. So now every other corporation wants a big sign, at least the same size, that says um, their name on it with their display. So we're not gonna take it out of the exhibit, but we're gonna move it to a less visible, so it's not sort of the first thing you see, a less visible location has been my negotiation. Um, but things you don't expect when you bring an object into the collection, um, you don't think about the impact that it's gonna have or the way other people are gonna see it um, become very obvious in some of these real estate negotiations that we're doing um, with corporations. Just a couple more. Um, corporations like to talk about their successes. And they like to talk about um, their current history. Um, and as Emily said, um, they, many of the materials that they've saved are materials that tell the story of um, innovation, product line, um, uh, marketing, uh, how they've projected themselves into the larger world. Uh, part of the important story that we feel our visitors need to find within this ex exhibit is a story of process of innovation. And often innovation comes out of failure. So this is an area of the exhibition where we talk about um, the social surveys that occurred in Pittsburgh in 1907, largely uh, now known as the Pittsburgh Surveys, one of the first major nationwide funded social surveys of a region. Um, and it was looking at uh, industrial health, injury, uh, work and settlement lifestyle of the immigrant workers that were coming to Pittsburgh in that period and working largely in the steel town. And there's a book called Homestead by Margaret Byington where Lewis Hine came to Homestead, um, a steel town along the Monaga Hill in Pittsburgh, and he took all these photographs and Margaret Byington actually lived in that community and documented the day-to-day -day life of the steel workers who were living in these boarding houses centered around the courtyard. And this is a courtyard, and you see the single privy that served up to 110 people who lived around that courtyard. And right next to the privy, you see the water, single water source for that whole area. So in 1907, when this survey happened, Pittsburgh was the center of um, waterborne diseases, deaths from waterborne diseases in the nation. And out of this grew, um, this social survey, out of this grew a whole effort for public health. So we are currently working with a major funder who has given us uh, money to explore the story of medicine in Pittsburgh. So this is a story I really want to tell, is this large story of public health. Um, for the most part, this has been an area where we talk about the social survey and where we talk about kind of the innovation of these women social workers and um, the work that was done in this national social survey for the first time and what came after. Um, in terms of the social work that was done, but we haven't talked so much about health. Well, the company that's um, a funder isn't really interested in the story of public health, though it's their institution that became 
um, the training ground for people doing public health and researching public health for the region and bringing about major changes of water system and a sewage system for the area. So I'm saying to them, part of your history is actually a history of innovation related to this failure in the subject matter. They're not thinking about their history that way. By the same uh, term, this is a part of the exhibit that's existed, um, this story of Jonas Salk. Um, what the research that we're doing now currently, this is a company that actually came to us and said, um, you know, in, in return for our donation, and this is in the crassest of terms, here's the things we'd like you to add to the exhibit. And they actually sat down and identified six stories that they wanted added. And at first I was a little bit turned off by it, but then when I sat down and looked at them, they were actually stories that had interesting ties to some of the things we were doing earlier. So I said, I want to take, this is where I see it as my opportunity, number one, to be completely transparent with them and to educate them about their own history, which is something we're doing with the Heinz Company, as Emily said. I said, I'd like to take these stories, but I'd like to find some of the antecedents. So SOC, now as I'm researching the stories on immunology and breast cancer research that is a present and current story, and looking at the roots of those stories, I'm finding connections to the work that Salk and his team were doing in the 1940s and 50s, and the way that immunological research grew out of that story. And it's helping me recast the way we're going to interpret medicine and the new economy um, in the context of Pittsburgh at a really critical time when, in the post-war period, when the larger economy is actually diversifying in ways that led to what um, Pittsburgh has today. So there's an investment in medical facilities, there's investment in bringing leading people to the city that developed the kind of medical economy we have today. So I'm finding an interesting connection to a much broader context out of the kind of leads that they gave them but um, recognizing that uh, there's a bigger story to be told and that we need to connect it to what's already there. So being completely transparent with them about the avenue in which I'm taking it, but hopefully getting them excited about a story that's much bigger than here's these six little things. Here's this major story we can tell about the region's development over time, um, and here's a way we can cast what you're interested in in a much broader context and make it much more robust and meaningful for our visitors. It will help them understand how Pittsburgh kind of survived the collapse of the steel industry um, in ways where many other industrial cities in the Rust Belt have struggled to come out of what are the tendrils that came out of the 40s, 50s, 60s that allowed that to happen in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. So next slide. I got you on Starkist. Oh, no, oh, I didn't yet. One more. <laughs> Doesn't want to switch. So I would say my key message is, um, you know, remember that those kind of foundational ethical documents of AAM, ASLH, kind of the standards that we adhere to, um, is your, ask yourself those questions when you're doing corporate history. Is this a mission-driven story? Um, is there a way that I can be transparent both with the donor and with the public, will I have complete transparency? Will I be able to maintain my standards of scholarship and intellectual integrity in the story that I tell? Um, and how do I educate and work with um, our development department so they understand that 
Um, we're all on the same team here, but there's a way to approach this history um, that needs to be there from the beginning to make it um, workable and ethical. And if you saw my slide, it was Charlie the Tuna, and I was going to say, you don't want to be saying sorry, Charlie, when you're all done. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> Melissa Brulu that for me. Well, thanks to Melissa for um, inviting me to be part of this panel, and for Emily and Anne, everything you said, I'm just going to repeat practically, because <laughs> we face the same issues. Um, and it might be worth saying here just a word about the governance structure for the Smithsonian. We are not a federal agency. We're a trust instrumentality of the United States, which makes us one of the oldest corporate forms in the U.S. and basically operate like sort of a quad, something between a nonprofit and a federal agency, but we don't take any federal money for exhibitions. That all has to be privately raised. So a lot of what you're saying, those lines that you have to walk, we have to walk as well. Um, so I'd like to use my time um, to do a little bit of a look back at Smithsonian history and the long history of involvement between business and museums. Don't worry, it's going to be like two minutes. It won't be that long. I'm just going to dip my toe in because it's worth thinking about those historical roots um, in order to understand the case study of our new exhibition that we just put up in 2015 on business history. Okay. Let's see here. Um, so as many of you know, business's involvement in museums really predates the nonprofit sector, which doesn't come along until the mid-20th century. And it also precedes codes of ethics that try to define the relationship between businesses and museums. So this is the Arts and Industries building. Um, it's built by the Smithsonian in 1881. It's the second building in the growing campus um, after the castle and it's known as the U.S. National Museum. And on the pediment on the front, it actually says Arts and Industry, which is what people could expect to see inside. And it really represented an effort on the part of leadership at the Smithsonian to expand the collections, to grow their public outreach, not just be a scientific institution, which it was previously, um, but also to showcase and celebrate the growth of American industries in the late 19th century. And one could also say America's colonial and imperialist efforts around the world. So the curators at the U.S. National Museum had close relationships with American businesses, particularly the big industries and innovators of the time period, like the railroad. So the railroad shows up um, about the time this building is built and says, lobbies Congress and says, why don't you take a bunch of examples of our industry since we are one of the foremost um, you know, progenitors of American expansionism in the world, and the Smithsonian takes those artifacts. Um, so they actively courted manufacturers, they asked them to deposit their goods and machinery at the Smithsonian, and they also invited businesses in this time period through the early 20th century to write their own label copy for exhibitions. And I know it seems strange to us today, uh, but it was par for the course at the time. And in this annual report from 1913, um, as it explains, really the museum is the handmaiden of industry. It's an aid to demonstrating their importance in the life of the American people and recording those economic changes. 
So one of my favorite curators from the time period, and I actually think I hold his job now, we have these long genealogies at the Smithsonian, is Chester G. Gilbert who was, um, my, he collected mining and he collected the chemical industry um, and minerals. And this is one of the early exhibits that of course comes from the 1876 fair. The Smithsonian was heavily involved in developing those industrial exhibits and then gets shipped once the building is open. But Gilbert really sees his role um, and the role of the museum as, quote, a, a vehicle to distribute the results of industrial research to the general pu public and to laud the accomplishments of industry. And he also saw it as a counterweight to growing movements in socialism and unionism right before the First World War. So he writes to numerous companies um, asking them to display their goods, um, letting them write uh, their own label copy, framing the story as they want to frame them. And as historian Eric Nystrom says in a nice article on Gilbert, Gilbert's letters really make clear that he's willing to provide advertising benefits in exchange for objects. So he writes to John's Mansville Company in 1913, which produced asbestos, of which we still have some in the collection. Um, Quote, when you pause to consider the conditions involved in such an exhibit, I think you cannot fail to recognize its decided advantages to you in light of advertising. So that's a little bit of background, and it takes a long time. There's a very slow shift um, over the 20th century at the Smithsonian that begins to move from this model to a more arm's length uh, relationship with businesses. Um, and part of that is really the shift, um, and that's really probably the subject for another talk, but part of it is really the professionalization of curatorial work in the 1920s, and along with it, the development of codes of ethics. So this is the earliest code of ethics developed by AAM, um, and it does directly address relationships with business and lays out this idea of the value of a museum is really about the intellectual life or the public good of the people that it serves. So it's with these codes of ethics, with this kind of thinking among professional curators and especially emphasized at the National Museum that you need to have some separation, otherwise you lose the public trust. So what does that mean for, you know, almost 100 years later at American History Museum. And an effort to build a, a new kind of business history exhibit, which was termed when it went up the first business history exhibit, sort of in quotes, um, at the Smithsonian. So in 2010, there were a group of curators that thought that in the light of the recent downturn, the crash of 2008, and then the continuing recession, that the museum really needed to think about business and economic history in a serious way and provide a space in which Americans could come and talk about not just the recession, but kind of the big sweep of American history as it was bound up um, with commercial culture and, and business. So the exhibit um, actually was hard to raise money for this exhibit at first. Um, the donors were pretty skeptical about that, and we definitely saw you know, the money is not coming from foundations necessarily, but from marketing departments and some, from some individuals. So the exhibit actually predates me. I joined as a guest curator in 2011 on the project and then was hired in 2015 
when it opens. So the exhibit is American Enterprise. Um, there's the entryway. Um, and the project over a five-year period while the exhibit was in development raised enough not only for the exhibition, which is considered permanent, so it has a 20-year run at the museum, but also enough for a conference center and for an endowed curatorship, actually two endowed curatorships out of this exhibition, which was our previous director's initiative. Every time they would raise money for an exhibition, they would tack on enough money for a curator um, to bring somebody new in to take care of those collections and that exhibition, and that's worked pretty well. So just a little bit about the exhibition. It is um, not the first business history exhibition, nor am I the first business history curator, but it is the first that places business in a larger historical context, right? Written by professional curators with a fairly critical eye about what stories should be told and, and how they should be told, couched in the recent historiography on uh, business and economic history. It's chronological. It moves from the early national period um, to the 2010s, and so that's a lot of territory to cover. It's um, pretty much a textbook history of American, of American history, but also through the lens of business. Um, it's organized within that chronology into marketplaces. So sort of there's a merchant marketplace, there's a corporate marketplace, there's a consumer marketplace that move through time and really show how goods and ideas were exchanged and gained value. Um, the curators who preceded me in the development of this effort, along with our education staff, really thought that business history was boring. <laughs> um, you know, we had a lot of hard road to hoe here. Um, and so they um, really counseled that we should do business history not through financiers, bankers, or business forms, but through producers, sellers, workers, and consumers, through human stories and how people come together, which I think is a good snapshot of where we are in terms of exhibit development um, now. So a few stats on the exhibit. Um, because it's a permanent exhibition, which again, the previous director at the museum was only interested in raising money for permanent exhibitions, which have carry a huge price tag, but then you don't have to change them much. Um, but I don't know. We're in a conversation right now about more, maybe more nimble exhibits are better. They raised $26 million for this exhibition. Um, $10 million went for the uh, exhibition itself. The rest was endowment money for staff and for conference center. But $10 million, the naming rights for the gallery were was a $5 million gift, and that came from the Mars family. Um, and so in 2015, $5 million would buy you 30 seconds of a Super Bowl commercial spot, right, that would run two or three times during the Super Bowl, or it'd buy you a 20-year exhibition. So if your <laughs> marketing people are looking at the cost-benefit of that, why not go for the exhibition? Uh, The loose argument for the exhibition is really that business was integral to the growth of American um, history and the economy, but that Americans have long debated um, the balance between individual opportunity and the common good. So we sought um, examples, case studies, 
personal experiences that got at that balance point. So when do you go for individual opportunity? How is that balanced by regulation and this idea of the common good? Um, like I said, we didn't really tackle business forms and people who've come through, we re recently had tours last year actually for um, American Society of Archivists and the, their corporate breakout session, um, business archivists, and they were like, why don't you do banking? Why don't you do more on franchising? Why don't you do this? And it's because those are really abstract things. And there was a feeling in the kind of pre-exhibition audience work that we did that those were too abstract um, for people to dig into. They wouldn't see themselves in those business forms. So we sort of left those in smaller places and, and went with more human stories. Um, this is the biography wall. So the marketplaces run down the center. The gallery's like a big shoebox. And the marketplaces are in the center. And they're bookended by biography on one side and advertising history on the other. Um, I think that I know this works well. We've done some post-exhibit um, audience studies including heat maps where people are actually standing in the exhibit. And we know that people do gravitate to this. They have conversations and generational conversations. They do look back um, at people that are looking at them and learn a little bit about their stories. So it's very appealing. Um, but I think for me and others, it leaves out the bigger structural issues that surround business and economic formation in the US over these time periods and honestly makes it look like everybody could have opportunity. When those things, business is raced, it's gendered, um, and it is ultimately unequal. So, and there was an effort too to make sure that we had some diversity in this wall, right? And so that, again, lends itself to the idea that everybody might have had opportunity, at least at this viewpoint, right? If you dig into the stories, you learn um, that people didn't, but most people are going to spend about 10 minutes in this exhibition overall. So when the exhibit opened in 2015, uh, Ed Rothstein, who's a journalist with the Wall Street Journal, called the show a skewed history of American business. And sometimes you know you're doing stuff right when nobody likes it, you know? <laughs> um, and he argued that, among other shortcomings, the exhibition left out successful business leaders. There weren't a ton of role models here. We had, we did have, you know, a lot of the collections that were collected in that 19th century. This was a reinterpretation of those. So we have Edison, but we have Edison's greatest failure, a baby doll that really didn't sell. Um, we have people who were schemers, uh, who were counterfeiters. Um, we have communists, we have socialists, um, we have a whole mix of people, and he really called it a, <laughs> that we left out role models in favor of egalitarian preoccupation. That's fine, I'm fine with that, actually. Um, he also alluded to other forms of inclusiveness um, that could be construed as unethical. So that the naming sponsors for the gallery also show up in a, s a short video about family business. So that we talk about Mars and S.C. Johnson as family businesses. And that is a particular worry because we are seen as this national museum, not the voice or funded by a, you know, a particular corporation or a particular family. So we need to play fair. 
Um, and that is a, a perfectly reasonable thing to ask us to do. One of the things that I was pleased when I pleased with when I came on board was there was a, two groups of um, consultants. There were about 20 uh, business consultants on the show and about 20 university-based scholars on the show. And when I would go with the main curatorial team to really talk to donors, there was a bright line in the sand between you're going to fund this exhibition, your name will be on a donor panel, but you never see the script, you never get to say what the interpretation will be, which some, some donors were very surprised <laughs> by the interpretation when it, when it opened. So let me talk a little bit about that. So this is the donor wall. It's right as you walk into the exhibition, and this was definitely a change for the American History Museum. So previous to this, donors are, were acknowledged at the end of exhibits in just a text panel. The text had a hierarchy to it, depending on how much a group gave. And for this show, they migrated up to the beginning of the exhibit. Um, and they're a little bit fuller um, than just a panel. And the um, curators really disliked this move and we debated it, we, we pushed back against it. Uh, ultimately, we weren't successful, um, so there they are. And we asked, actually, if you are gonna put donors at the beginning, Mars originally wanted um, video of the M&Ms uh, spokes characters there, sir, like the star kiss Tina. I know, that's their friendly face, right? Um, and, <laughs> and we said, oh, you know, we're not gonna do that. But um, we did ask that people and foundations and corporations say why they give money to museums. Yep. Um, so why are you giving? You know, why, how does your mission match our mission here? And tell us a little bit about that. And some are more successful than others. I still think there's an unease with this. You could see it as transparency. Um, you could see it as advertising. Um, we could debate those things. A friend of mine in academia says, at least you know who's paying the bills. Um, and I think that is true. You can walk in. I do see people stop here. Um, and I don't know where they go from there. But you could take this list and then compare it to the interpretation and content in the exhibit if you wanted to. For instance, we did accept money from Monsanto. Um, so then you can look at the interpretation in the agriculture section of the show to see if they're there, what the interpretation is. They're not there. Um, Um, this is advertising. There's a huge advertising wall. Um, people love that. The designers really wanted a wall of advertising as kind of a hook to draw people in. And then when I came on the project, advertising history is actually one of my specialties. So I said, you really need to do an exhibit on the back that talks about advertising and Americans' choices about um, financing all of our media through advertising and making it commercial stereotypes, other things that come out of advertising. Uh, we had some very interesting um, conversations with Altria, which is formerly Philip Morris, about taking their advertising out of the show because it's a violation of the master settlement. Uh, we did not do that because they had donated it to the museum in the 1990s. And we usually never say, right, what's going in a show, but its intern called them to clear the rights for the advertising. <laughs> So they knew, uh, and we got called to the Hall of Big um, Tobacco to talk about it. 
Um, and ultimately, that conversation was a really good one. Uh, we were going to include the truth campaign anyway, but we didn't have a contact there, and they did. And so it was very productive. Um, and then lastly, um, a little bit, I know I'm pushing us slightly over time here. We've had two additional hires besides myself. Um, so we hired a curator of philanthropy, history of philanthropy, and a second curator of business history who just came on board last month, who does African-American um, and women's history. Uh, and this spring, the Smithsonian launched a big women's history initiative, which was the result of um, conversations and a commi congressional commission whether to build a women's history museum or not. And the commission decided not to fund the building of a museum, but to give the money to the Smithsonian to document women's history and exhibit it and hold conversations and hire new curators. So I've been working um, to fill holes in the advertising collection, which is the advertising collection in American history is the second or first largest compared to Duke University but it had nothing about Latinx-owned ad agencies. And there are a lot of Cuban diaspora that opened agencies in the US um, and folks of Mexican and Mexican-American descent who opened agencies. So I've been working on oral histories and collecting in those areas, but also taking selected things that come over the transom. So Lillian Vernon passed away um, about three years ago, four years ago, and her family offered the kitchen table on which she invented and ran the business for the first like five or six years of the company. And I thought that's, that's just too good of a story to pass up. Um, and then lastly, in, I saw Melissa's question about labor history because we don't have a labor historian right now um, that falls to the business history folks. So I recently opened this exhibition on women's unwaged labor in the home and its connection to low wages in the workplace. And this has gotten more press than anything I've ever done. Um, we published uh, in the exhibition a big uh, infographic, and I actually see people out there taking notes on the infographic about women making about 78 to 80 cents on the dollar for every woman. Um, so that's a new kind of mining of those, those things. All right, I will end there so that we have some time for questions. We'll have to speak into the microphones. These are being recorded. So who has a question or comment? I would love to hear a little bit more about your, anyone's relationships with companies and how those transparent conversations come about because sometimes when you're starting the relationship, you don't even know much about the corporate history, I'm assuming. so. And it's always my instinct as the person more on the development side to want to know what the company's motivation is in having a relationship with you. But just by asking that, you're kind of implying that that might be you know, put into the exhibit or whatever. So I'd love to know from experienced people how you handle those conversations. Maybe this is a question for Anne um, to answer in like 30 seconds. I generally have a spiel I do kind of explaining how history happens within a museum and that we're telling uh, story in a different way than you would in a book or a publication or a movie uh, and that our stories require materials to tell that story. 
Um, I always ask for a single contact to work with within the company that things can flow through. Um, and I say that in the beginning, it's going to be a journey where um, we sit down together, talk about what they know about the history. They hook me up with other people. Um, and we begin to look at what the materials are that exist to actually tell the history. Um, so uh, I view it as a, it's a, I say, you know, I always re-say, re you know, you have to date before you get married, right? So I consider it kind of, there's the first date where you have that conversation, and then you're developing a relationship. Um, because to be successful on both sides, um, there has to be a relationship where we can be honest with each other and where I can feel comfortable saying, you know, this isn't something they know how to do, so we're teaching them. It's an educational opportunity. So going into that as an educator and as somebody who wants to have a positive relationship makes things work more smoothly, and you tend to be able to have those difficult conversations if you see it as a building of trust and a building of a relationship. And I'm sure Kathy has the same experience. Yeah, I do. So. <laughs> Usually it's the, I mean, almost everything flows through either senior leadership, depending on the size of the business, or through marketing um, at this point. Um, there are certain corporations that are large enough to have their own foundations, and sometimes it comes through the foundation arm of the corporation. So I see that person as the person who's going to lead me to other people within the company um, to have the more meaningful kind of mining of materials. Since we have so little time, maybe, kind of yeah. That, um, question or, um, <laughs> so this discussion that we've been having lately about Warren Kanders uh, and the Koch brothers and uh, Sack brothers and whatever, the sort of tainted money thing, how does that come into play with corporations and participation? Maybe not so much from the exhibition end of things, but from the board and uh, and well there, there is an exhibition component to, to some of those examples. Gosh, am I getting the microphone because we have the For Your Sackler Gallery? <laughs> 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 and Bill Cosby's collection and, you know, a lot of stuff. Um, yes, it does play into exhibitions. Um, I think it's hard to change an exhibition once it's gone up just because of the factor of, you know, having enough money to maintain that and put that in. and if every recent controversy changed your interpretation, then you would be doing that all the time. But certainly what we do is um, our docents are trained um, and then when curators are on the floor to you know, give specialized tours and things, we get a lot of questions about that and we answer them, right, within the context of the history of American business. Um, but also if we study up enough with that particular thing without, you know, getting into legal terms or blame or any of, of that. I think it's, you know, it's hard, the Smithsonian is so big and there's been a bunch of debates, especially around Cosby's collection, like what is that? Um, that's a little bit different than actually profiling a company in an exhibition, right? It's a personal decision. So that I think is an open question. I assume in our exhibition if something, um, you know, if we had an Enron in the exhibition, the next time we do an update, which is every five years, that that will go in there, that there were some kind of company, depends on how big it is, but if the company goes bust or they're, you know, 
lose all their money to legal fees. We actually do opi opioids in the um, in American enterprise, the kind of long history of dealing in drugs in the U.S., so we might add that on to it. Otherwise, people think that you're not being honest. And like we trade on authenticity and honestly, honesty at the Smithsonian, so when we don't acknowledge it, then it just makes us distrusted. And I do think uh, it is honesty because when we, ours will be more individuals that critique the interpretation or the story that we're telling, um, or you make a mistake, an honest mistake. And for me, it's being able to say we were wrong and thank you for finding that error and bringing it to our attention. Um, and mu museums and exhibits are things that change very slowly. You know, they want to see the change tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And explaining to them that these things take time for us to acknowledge um, and to repair and fix in something that's long-term especially. Um, so for me, it's being willing to say, you know what, you're right, we're wrong, if that's the case. And um, saying, but understand that our change and our acknowledgement of that mistake may take some time. And we ask that we, we understand that there's an error here or there's something that we need to explore because some of these are very conflicted questions. Mm -hmm. You know, Bill Cosby might be a bad person, but his contribution through that show to television history, to American culture, to popular culture, um, you can't not acknowledge that. I mean, I do sports all the time. Um, Ty Cobb was a miserable person, but he's in the, he was a racist, uh, he was a nasty man, but he's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. You know, and when you talk to Hall of Fames as museums as their interpretation, they will tell you, oh, Jay Simpson's jersey is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Um, so, Lance Armstrong, we have Lance Armstrong in the Sports Museum uh, because much of his early career started uh, in Pittsburgh. He won a major million dollar race that funded it, actually a lot of his cancer treatment. So, people's lives evolve and their biographies change and what we know and understand about them change. And we can't always be as nimble as we would like to be to um, address that. Um, but then we also have to acknowledge too that you can't necessarily deny the contribution or the impact that they had on American history. That, that, that needs to be acknowledged as well within the context of your interpretation. Well, thank you so much. I think um, we, are out of, we are out of time. <laughs> If you wouldn't mind filling out evaluations and leaving them on the table. And again, we do have, if there are six of you who would love to come with Emily and I to lunch, here are maps, just pick them up and join us there. Um, the reservation's under my name. Um, I am not an expert in this, but I am a junkie, so I'd love to hear more about your, your corporate stories. Thank you so much.